0: Hello and welcome to episode number 23. Of Earth.
1: How do you breed new kinds of plants, right? How do you get to a place where you make original dis- dev- developments or discoveries? Well, we've accidental kind of thing has happened to us several times. And we ended up with a tomato plant, the next generation, that gave 50, 100, 200 flowers, and huge clusters of fruits. The ability to to open up gardening to become a creative force by backyard gardeners who can make new varieties that adapt to where they are, that have better nutrition because they know what to look for.
0: Hello, I'm your host, Andrew Millison, and today we're going to talk to Dr. Alan Capular, known as Mushroom, who's the founder of Peace Seeds, He once characterized his seed catalog as a manual for conserving the plant gene pool of planet Earth. Focused on breeding high-nutrition fruits and vegetables for humanity, Dr. Capular mushroom, has a diverse seed collection of about 15,000 accessions. He was the co-founder and research director of Seeds of Change, perhaps the first national organic seed company. Dr. Capuller entered Yale at 16, graduating first in his class of 1000, his undergraduate honors thesis earned him the highest grade that Yale had ever bestowed. Then in 1973, he left academia and molecular biology laboratories to return back to the land and help steward the organic seed movement into what it is today. So please enjoy this interview with one of the elders of the organic agriculture movement, Dr. Alan Mushroom Capular. Good afternoon, Mushroom. How are you doing? Well, thank you. Yeah, this it's so great. Usually I'm doing these interviews over Skype or over the internet, but here you are sitting in my living room because you live down right down the road from me. So this is great to be sitting here with you and your lovely wife, Linda, here. So um, I wanted to start by talking about your vision of the biodiversity of the world. I mean, I know you've built this kinship garden that I've visited that reflects the evolution of plants through the ages. And so you obviously have a lot of insight about um, how the world has shaped itself. So I was wondering if you could speak to that a little bit and to the, the kinship garden that you've created.
1: Most of us don't have a really good idea about how old we are. So you say, how, how old are you? Oh, I'm 40, I'm 30, I'm 10, I'm 116. Actually, how old are we? So if we look inside our bodies, <clears throat> we see cells. We've got about 100 trillion cells. And in the 100 trillion cells, there are organelles in the cells, like ribosomes. So what is a ribosome? A ribosome is where proteins are made. And proteins are made on the ribosomes because the information comes from the nucleus, comes from a DNA molecule, which has an RNA copy of a certain, set of, a certain gene, and that goes to the ribosome and is translated into sequences of amino acids from sequences of nucleotides. We have about 20 to 25,000 genes, human beings do. So we got twenty to twenty-five thousand genes. They're all being read through ribosomes, and the ribosomes—where'd they come from? So we go from being animals, hominids, Homo sapiens, to being warm-blooded, to being diploids. We have two sets of chromosomes—one from our moms and one from our dad. What we got? Two. We're diploids. We're all hybrids. So there's one observation. Everybody you know is a hybrid. So That sort of makes it somewhat more realistic to talk about well, what if you're a hybrid? You got a, one set of chromosomes from one parent and another set from another parent. How far back does that pairing of chromosomes go when you've got mammals, animals, when you've got birds, AVs, when you have uh, reptiles and you've got turtles, and you've got lizards, and all those are animals. They go back, and the body plan for the animals, including the genetic information, to make the bodies with arms, with fingers, with brains, with sensitivity of all kinds, whether it's sound or sight, those go back a half a billion years. So we've got about a half a billion years to look at the animals. And before the animals, how'd you make the animals? You made them from microbia, from little, little, little critters of all kinds. And those little, little, little critters, they go back another half a billion to one and a half billion years. And then in the beginning, you had populations of organisms called viruses them the oldest kind, and when we get to us now, human beings, everybody you know, the body they have has a set of chromosomes with twenty some, twenty five thousand genes, and yet the genes are built so that there's single copy genes, one of that, one of that, one of that. On chromosomes, we got 20, 23 pairs of chromosomes. We got on, or uh, is it twelve and twenty four? You got chromosomes with single-copy genes, and in between those single-copy genes would make the functions of your eyes that see and your ears that hear and the sensitivity you feel and the heart that beats and the lungs that breathe. you got 174, most people have 174 viruses living in their lungs. They don't even know they're living there, right? We don't talk to viruses. But we could talk to viruses because they're the oldest ancestors we know about that come through billions of years of what we call evolution on this world. And here we are sitting here at the current time with 8 billion people, homo sapiens, who are in the process of eliminating, destroying every kind of level of the diversity of life that remains with us. Because it's not like what happens... A billion years ago, or half a billion years ago, or 100 million years ago, or 100 million years ago is when the flowering plants, maybe 125 million, flowering plants came to rise in this world. If you want to look at life and what its diversity is, okay, plants, something we can all appreciate, whether it's for their flowers, or their buds, or their fragrance, or their medicinal healing properties, those... 400,000 species of angiosperms. That's just angiosperms. We're not talking about ferns. We're not talking about conifers. We're not talking about mosses or liverworts. We're just talking about one group of what we have here, and they weren't here 150 million years ago. They were not here on this world. Now, they're major contributors. And now we're at the place in diversity where what's happened is flowers, blooming flowers, pollinated by insects more than wind or water. But there are so many different... Oh, so we're hybrids? So we can make hybrids. The question is, so what is it? we got a population of 8 billion people, and the males and females uh, interbreed, right? Are well, they the same? They interbreed, males and females right? You get one set of chromosomes, another set, you make a diploid. We're all diploids. So what happens in this population of diploids when we freely mate among all the different kinds going back 100,000 years, or we'll go back to your grandma and your grandpa and go back to their great-great-great grandpa and grandma, and we'll go back, and how far you go back, and you got Homo sapiens, and you got maybe 10 million years Homo habilis, one of the other species. you got other species... So here you've got all these genes reflecting diversity in humans. Right now, they found, right, Neanderthal has, we 5% of our DNA is Neanderthal DNA or something like that. Mm-hmm. So here's another species that was interbreeding from different species. So actually, when we call them hybrids, the population of all the breeding kinds is a grex. So get that word, grex. Because grex has to do with populations of interbreeding organisms and how you make diversity in the fabric of the breeding. Because you take the chromosomes and they pair up and they cross over and they recombine. And then you have viruses that come along and they come in through the membrane and they migrate to the nucleus and they put in another piece of, a little piece of DNA or a little piece here and there or they cut it over here and cut it over there and they rearrange it and they make new kinds of possibilities. Think about it. If you have 23 pairs of chromosomes and you got uh, 1,000 genes on each chromosome, you got 23,000 genes. So so that's what you got basically. On every chromosome, you got about 1,000 genes. And the 1,000 genes, they have single, that's been single copy genes, then you have all this other stuff between them that's regulating how active those ingredients are. This is a system that's taken billions of years to evolve. So the Earth's life story is very ancient, and the diversity we have now, you can look at it through the perspectives, whether it's algae, whether it's bacteria, whether it's v- which kind of what viruses, whether it's mammals, whether it's sentience, whether it's ecocentric, violent destroyers of the biodiversity because there are more important things in people's lives when they consider that. Is it okay to cut down old trees? Is it okay to destroy forests? Is it okay to make a world which doesn't have the kind of diversity that you can look at? Uh, An example, Uh, daisies. So daisies have all kinds of, of there are 25,000 different kinds of daisies. Well, there's also 25,000 different kinds of orchids. Right? So now how do they relate to one another? The orchids are monocots, the daisies are dicots. And so they have, So, if you want to get a map in your own mind about what the structure of diversity is, you begin to realize that every plant in your house, every plant in your yard, everything that's made out of stuff can be mapped back to what it was that it came from. Where did it come from? and that is the structure of diversity. Hmm. Because everything we do only gives us a little peek at what the
0: diversity really is. Right. So how did you take this really wide expansive understanding of evolution and all these, you know, massive amounts of of pieces from all these the different kind of threads of evolution on the planet and how did you actually weave that into a a garden system, the, the kinship garden.
1: Well, you know, if you look at your family, all the the local breeding groups, we call it a family. So, now who a kinship garden is like? Who's related to who's related to who's related to who's related to who's related to, who's related to who, right? On and on and on and on, because it's all the relatives of stuff tell you what, what the possibilities are that things will cross. First of all, that you can do breeding. Uh, if you try to take a pumpkin and cross it with a squash, uh, you might want to know which species it is, for example. So there's maximus and papos and other species, uh, there's a bunch of other of species. So, but you need to know those things, and sometimes between what are called species, they cross too, because that, it's not always clear who named what for what reason, right? That taxonomically is one thing. Oh, kinship gardening. So the kinship garden was to say, well, okay, sunflowers. There are 50 species. They mostly grow in the United States. That is the, it's the major major uh, helianthus family of species that grow in the United States, and there are occasional crosses between them. But actually, they grow. One grows here, and another one grows here, and another one grows here. So even if they could cross, you don't know if they're going to cross because nobody puts them next to one another. So that's one... That was like... So so that's kinship. So if you t- and then took all the 50 species of Helianthus, you'll have some which act, uh, drop seeds and, uh, and grow from seed each year. They're annual. Some of them will be perennials. Some will grow in southern Texas in sandy beach soil. Other ones will grow up in the mountains at uh, you know 8,000 feet. So every one of those sets of characteristics is what makes the kinship layout, and why you try to see who's related to who. Because if you would like to adapt it to where you are, or to promote it in terms of having more resistance to uh, gasoline fumes and more resistance to uh, jet contrails, then then maybe you would, uh, you know, you could do that, right? You could actually improve varieties because you have curiosity about how to mix the genes. mean to make a map of this stuff is like okay, how are you going to study this stuff so one part when I first started growing seeds uh, uh, being interested in nineteen well let's see uh, nineteen seventy three maybe nineteen seventy four maybe nineteen seventy five j l. Hudson took over Harry Sayer seed company in California and he got a fabulous set of seeds to market and he began to write down and all sorts of stuff about the seeds and their relationship, which, which genus, which family, which order, so you can see, oh, you know, if I don't have any idea about how it's built, it's like, how well are we going to keep our bodies if we have no idea about how they're built? Whereas some foods you eat make you healthy, some foods you eat make you sick. Some foods aren't foods. Some things are medicines. Is it okay to spray chemical poisons on agriculture and to kill off plants so we can get higher yields quickly? Or is it more relevant not to use poisons in agriculture in the system? It's that the whole thing is broken. It's all monocultures. If we're going to go back into biodiversity, we need some access to what is the map of the whole thing. And and so J.L. Hudson, I bought 50 kinds of seeds from J.L. Hudson in '73. I took them and I mixed them in a bowl and I threw the packs away. And I said, okay, you've got to learn what, you've got to grow what germinates and you've got to figure out what it is. So that started me. And the other part was being an itinerant, uh, poor hippie who didn't have money to go spend on restaurants and had friends who were all in the same position. We better start gardening, we better grow our own food. Where are we going to get the seeds to grow our own food? Huh, all the seeds are coming from big corporate companies or large. Uh, who, but I got some from J.L. Hudson. He had just taken over a private seed company, and that wasn't commercial. It was conceptually diverse. And then you start to look at, well, I like tomatoes. Well, most of the tomatoes, where do the tomatoes come from? Oh, they come from central, from Mexico maybe, but more down in Peru, in, 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 the, in the Andes of Peru. you got tomato plants, species, you got species. But it's interesting, you take tomatoes and in the species, in the mountains, they cross with one another. So you get a a diversity of different kinds of morphologies and flower characteristics and uh, flowering times, depending on the elevation. All these variations of issues are built into where they come from and how they were selected before we started transplanting stuff all over the world. We transplanted corn. And we transplanted white potatoes, selenum tuberosum, to to Asia. uh, That was what Columbus and some of the the early... They moved food plants into populations that didn't have those. Sweet potatoes were also part of that thing, which all of a sudden, a lot of poor people in China and Siberia could grow enough food to have healthy families. And all of a sudden, there's not only... What is the diversity, but is it, how did it get where it is, and what are the native species in the area you live in? What are the ones that were here before we got here? And before we got here were other populations of hominids. What did they bring from wherever they brought and not the only ones. I mean, birds go, they pick up a seed, and they fly 10 miles, and they poop. And all of a sudden, they planted the seeds 10 miles away. Some of these butterflies and some of these, they migrate for hundreds and thousands of miles in cycles. Are they carrying genetic information that gets mixed up? Yes, they are in various ways. So that, that's, something, that's how I started getting into it is how are you going to learn about this stuff and then Jay Maberly wrote a book called The Plant Book, which you could put in your hand. It was that big. There were no computers at the time, but it had every genus pretty much that was known in a, comp, in a discussion and where it comes from. So I read that book, right? Then there was a cor- book called Cornucopia. I forget who, uh, who wrote, wrote it, but he wrote a good book. So it was like, read the whole book, right? It's reading all around the world for what are food plants and what are the structure? Who comes from where? And so that's part of it, is pursuing what you're interested in and say, learn more about it. It's available now. You can take a computer, you can type in a name, and all of a sudden you get pages of information. You don't have to go to school to do that. You just have to be able to get interested in what's possible. And what's possible is that conservation of biodiversity and breeding of new kinds. Oh, so how do you breed new kinds of plants, right? How do you get to a place where you make original developments or discoveries? Well... We accidental kind of thing has happened to us several times. One of them was that there are the Andean tomato species, of which there are 17 species in, uh, in that group, of, and they give rise to tomatoes. But and inadvertently, I was, I was curious, why can't we cross some of the existing tomatoes that we grow in this country that are heirlooms, whether it's... Uh, there are many beautiful heirloom varieties of tomatoes. Why don't we cross some of those to the Andean species? I don't know. How come I did. So I try to look for the seeds. Other these, uh, uh, let's see, so, you know, there's the There's a whole bunch of Pimpinella folium. There's Oveda. You need to know the species. Where do you get them? So you try to get them, and you find out it's not easy to get the seeds of the original parents of the stuff that led to the, what we have right now. Uh, the USDA has a good plant collection, but they are increasingly privatizing its access. So the GRIN Network, the Germplasm Resources Information Network, is a good resource to be able to acquire seeds, but they will ask you about just how good are you at doing this and what are you going to do with it. Uh, so, but, so part of it is what do you do in diversity is to accumulate germplasm that you can use for further developments. It doesn't necessarily know that you know what you're going to do. It's like books. I bought th- four volumes of the flora of West Virginia uh, 20 years ago and I never opened them. But two years ago I opened them and those with another set of books I bought comparable time. They had Cretagus Hawthorne, and Rubus, Blackberries. So here it is. I had books that I bought 20 years ago. I opened up and read them one winter, and what do I see? That these genera are clustered with 50 or 100 species. Thought, wow, that's pretty crazy. You got all those Rubus there. We got Rubus there. You got it comes from there and there, and you got Cotugas. You got 50, and then you you look at that and you say, well, maybe it's not that. At all. Maybe it's just the grex. Maybe that's how it really works. See, I didn't know about this stuff. Grex was a word that came from the orchids that had to do with one species that was found in Asia. And anyway, that Can was... Can you define grex again? Oh, grex means a flock in Greek. Okay. It's a flock. So a grex is a flock, an interbreeding flock. Okay. You know, a, 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 one of... I forgot which one. I, I, maybe it was Delano or it was it Kustra asked me to... Qu- what point. You see that flock of the flight of geese? How old are they? which generations of geese are you watching fly there? Is that an old, you know, and they switch the leadership and the thing rotate. But at the same time, are those geese, are some of those geese 15, 20, 25 years old? And some of them are only three years old, right? And all of a sudden you have a population. That's a Grex in, mm-hmm. in a new, It's a new word, right. a new term, because yeah. it has to do with uh, how you're going to mix. If you look at varieties that people garden they pick out certain uh, individual named cultivars that have been in population for 10 50 or 100 500 years but suppose you wanted to have a question like i want to have tomatoes that grow where i live and thrive when the soil is wet and cold and don't get fungus diseases that happen through the late fall uh, blight season how do i how do i do that Right, then you find out that all the tomatoes you have—they all set seeds, pretty much. The ones you buy, well, they all set seeds, so they're self-fertile. Otherwise, they'd be. And if you grow them up, you find out the one you collected as what's next generation. So they're self-fertile, and but if they're self-fertile and don't cross with anything, you can't adapt it to anything where you are. Right. So here it is, sixty years of tomatoes that everyone's been growing, and they're all non-adaptive cultivars. Hmm. Well, you could do the same thing. A, a, a guy, Dave Christensen, did some things with corn, where he grew corn in the Rocky Mountains at five to 8,000 feet and selected for 30 years and got, after killing off thousands and thousands and thousands of corn plants, seedlings, he ended up with some that will come up in cold, wet weather, made of starch corn that grows in cold, wet climate. So I read that, I heard him give a talk, and I thought, wow, this is good work, nice breeding, good idea I mean, all the time you're watching the cold come in, the snow, and the freezing, and the corn plant. Every once in a while, you get a corn plant that's not going to die, and it survives the cold. And then you, so. But I don't like starch corn. I like sweet corn. What? So I, I wrote him a letter. Can I have some of these seeds? I want to buy some seeds from you so I can uh, uh, do some work. And he said, What are you going to do? And so I said, What do you mean? I'm not going to tell you what I'm going to do. But but I what I will do is I'll talk to a friend of mine who already. Because that seed that he didn't want to give let me buy from him was already being sold by Stokes Seed Company in New York for three years. It had already been pri- public domain seed. But a friend of mine had a pound or two of the two seed. He gave me a pound of seed. And I crossed it to an heirloom from the East Coast, white corn. Uh, Luther Hill was called. 1903, he was a superintendent of a school, Luther Hill. And he liked to look at stuff, and he figured out this was a any anyway, white corn that has... So I crossed... Oh, but it comes up in cold, wet soils, right? So uh, I could cross it to his starch corn and reselect it out and make an uh, interesting polycultured sweet corn that comes up in cold, wet soil, right? So it was like, Oh, that's how you go, you know, so your mind says, how do you go do these things? What are the genes that will influence the behavior? So with the tomatoes, here it is, the tomatoes were all inbreeders. They never crossed anywhere in the United States for 50 or 100 years. And if you cross an Andean species with a species that came from, that was called the grape chest tomatoes. So we crossed habrocades glabratum with, with, uh, uh, grape-pressed tomato of small uh, yellow uh, fruits, maybe 10, 20 on a thing. And we ended up with a tomato plant, the next generation, that gave 50, 100, 200 flowers and huge clusters of fruits. So who have any idea, it outbreds. So then people would take some of the centiflor tomato, 100 centiflor, you know, and, and they would put it, in, and they would cross to their own other plants in the yard, and you begin to have a way to adapt those plants that you like to grow because they're heirlooms or because they're great tasting or because they're interesting or because you, anyway, they do well. And you can then continue to adapt the tomatoes so they come up. Rather, in, When the snow comes down and the spring is about to start, usually a lot of plants are going to wait quite a while before they start to make seedlings. But if you can do the right breeding, you could enhance them to come up a month or two months months earlier. And partly what we're doing in diversity is how do we feed ourselves the right nutritional characteristics? A good idea is the, what you, you look in your eye... And you see retinal purple. That's a retinaldehyde. That's 15 carbons long. I believe it's cut in half from a from a carotene uh, carotenoid pigment. That's 30. See, so and and then it ends up giving you the visual purple in your eye. And then around, then in the retina of the eye, there are two. There are rings of uh, lutein and zeaxanthin. Two more carotenoids. Those three pigments help you from going sunlight, uh, blue light, sunlight can hurt your eyes, and you can go blind as you get older from cataracts and stuff. This has to do with being able to say, oh, we should have foods that have yellow pigments, like zeaxanthin, that have orange pigments, like beta-carotene, and that have lutein pigments. All those three go into your eye Well, isn't that about nutrition? Shouldn't we be growing those varieties that allow our eyes to see and better? So that's just an example of how you would go about, in every kind of characteristic, there are analytical ways of looking at the plants and figuring out how can they be allies in helping us have better health. I mean, right now we got flu epidemics, we got one thing after another, we got a huge amount of use of antibiotics to try to... Antibiotics are generally fungal products, a lot of the time, or manipulated fungal products that will kill bacteria. I mean, maybe the whole way of looking at this stuff is not so enlightened, right? We like to concede ourselves that we are very good at what we do, and there are many discoveries, but the ability to, to open up gardening to become a creative force by backyard gardeners who can make new varieties that adapt to where they are, that have better nutrition because they know what to look for. And that is what we work on.
0: Yeah, You've talked about the what biodiversity is like and a lot of the intricacies of how it is formulated and arranged. Um, I'd like you to talk a little bit now about the loss of biodiversity. How did we get from where we were with this massive multitude of biodiversity um, to the state we're in now? Like, like w- what's happening right now in, in your perspective with, with the destruction loss of biodiversity? What is the scale on the planet of that loss at this point?
1: Well, I think if we would go to most of the urban circumstances where there's a lot of people, uh, there's not a lot of different kinds of plants. Everywhere you go, you could say, what what was here before I got here? right? So you, you, you look at what it is where you are to give you an idea what the diversity actually is. Otherwise, I mean, in any group of plants, I mean, what would be an interesting group of plants? Uh, uh, everybody has different plants they might, might be interested in. How are you going to figure out which ones you're going to conserve? or how many relatives there were in that area uh, when you or your ancestors arrived. Take Manhattan Island. I mean, if you look at Manhattan Island or Brooklyn, Brooklyn, a, a, a beautiful brook, Brooklyn, right? Well, is there any brooks running there? There's the Gowanus Canal, which has a collection of pollution from petroleum and from paints and stuff that's colossal, right? There are, what were the native species that grew here before we decided to inhabit and organize the land in such a way as to raise cattle, to raise animals that would be grazing, to have agriculture that would be, take a tractor, go out, turn over 100 acres, plant the same wheat crop. It's called monoculture monoculture has taken over our basic agriculture. So that's one of the things we all have to deal with is that what used to grow in diversity by the sides of creeks up down in mountains all over the place where there are only so many grazers and eaters of the diversity, because the thing is a woven fabric of life sustaining itself. The more we eat, the more kinds there are, the more kinds of possibilities there are, the more genes there are, the more rearrangements of the genes there are. All those things give you access to, so what are we doing now? We're cutting down, let's, example, I remember reading recently was the oil, palm oil trees have been used to cut down huge tropical forests to plant monocultures. Again, the issue is monoculture. And what happens is then what about all – I I watched it in southern Oregon where they want to protect the ground for uh, the fire hazard thing. So all of a sudden you start to go go, uh, uh, and take away all the underbrush. You take away all the, the habitats for little creatures and for insects and stuff and where all sorts of herbal flowers grow on the ground and stuff. It's, it's like we're going to transform it so the only thing we plant back are Douglas firs or the only thing we plant back are uh, Ponderosa pines. What about the structure of all the different kinds of pines and kinds of spruces and firs and tamaracks? And so, so what about planting more different kinds every time we plant rather than planting the same thing every time we plant? And so there are some of the issues are what would this place look like as we go back before people? Well, there were big, big, big reptiles, right? There were dinosaur kind of creatures that were huge. And the mar- and the hominids, the, homies, the, 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 the uh, warm-blooded blooded creatures uh, were little and they lived under the ground right? Because these big, li- li- they, they ran the place, right? All of a sudden you had birds that were seven feet tall that were predatory birds. Y- you obviously didn't want to go around in their neighborhood because they would eat you for breakfast. And that was what was going on. So what is the diversity? Is a long sequence of interaction of all the different organisms and what the, then on top of that is the climate and how it changes with the pattern of, the cosmos, that we live in. So, Leni that's another piece of the puzzle. If you wonder about how it is we're in a galaxy, a Milky Way galaxy, so we got, what, 100 million stars, 100 million stars in our own galaxy. There's 100 million, at least, galaxies, right? The minute you understand the size and the immensity of the cosmos, then to get a picture about what happened on Earth in 4 billion years when the whole thing we know is at least, what, Fifty a hundred how many how many It's it, the cosmos is ancient,
0: we have a heritage that's ancient. we're new here so um I've heard you talking about um keeping the gene pool open in your breeding. Do you want to talk a little bit about that because I think that I think that a lot of people listening uh, are actually you know might might be interested in something practical as far as like how do you breed you know like what's the what's the sort of essence of it
1: well in one case for instance if it's corns or or sugar beets or beets they the pollen is blown in the wind so you don't have to do it you just plant them all together and let them cross you could cross two kinds of corn you like or 10 kinds of corn you like. You can grow, I mean, part of the thing was I got tired of eating yellow corns. Why not have uh, rainbow corns, multicolored corn? So, so at one point I was across. They were selling uh, these uh, Chocalo, Peruvian Chocalo white starch seeds with a corn nuts, I think they call them. And you could buy a bag of them toasted and salted, but they give you a little five seeds in a little bag. So I got a couple of those little bags and I planted those things. uh, And that made a big ear of corn that took a long time, but with the big starchy seeds. And then, so I ended up Saying, oh, let's, I got Hopi and uh, all sorts of South um, uh, New Mexico, Arizona, native people's corns. I had traded or I got a couple of seeds. Of, so I could cross the two of those and made multicolored seed corn. It was just interesting to do. So, so what you could do is, so that's wind pollination. Get, to st- Collect what you like, put it together, let it cross. You can see with the tomatoes that if you had a centifloor tomato, which is an outbreeder with everyone you like, it'll help you do the crossing. Let the bees do the work. They are into this. Give habitats for pollinating insects. That's another part of it. Or hummingbirds that like plants with nectaries, right? Flowers with nectaries so they can sip the the nutrient fluid at the bottom of the nectary. But they also then carry little pollen from one flower to another. So it's like how do you do it is by looking at which characteristic of pollinating systems. But corn is easy to breed because you pick the ones you like. Uh, When you get to ones like, we would like peas, so we like snap peas and and we like snow peas. So, okay, let's make some rainbow-colored snow peas. Well, it took 10, 15 years to be able to make a purple-potted snap pea or yellow-potted snap pea or now even red ones. And and so more developments of interesting rainbow colors, and, and that was how do you do it? You had to find a parent that had a purple pot, even though you wouldn't need to pee because it was like cardboard, but it was purple. So that was one of the parents. Then you needed so it's looking around for what characteristics are held by which cultivar is what you accumulate as your data set, right, with which you can then mix it if you either hand pollinate it or let the bees, or the bumblebees or, or or the hummingbirds, or uh, the water I, I always get a feeling that if you water plants that, are po- that the water, the pollen goes in the, in the water and the water splashes and, and so you've got another pollinating mechanism mm-hmm.
0: so that kind of thing mm-hmm. yeah and what about the idea of you know it seems like um, when people develop a seed type we're really careful not to cross it with other seeds yet nature has this capacity to really rapidly evolve when we let it do you want to talk a little bit about that
1: it wouldn't be going to, doing very well if we didn't ha- have an ability to do it because we see that things that don't cross, s- extinct, right? What happens, you disappear from the map if you don't have a fertility system that allows you to propagate. So you got it exactly right. It's just... Uh, yeah. it, and it's, but, 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 I mean, I remember the peas. Uh, I thought, how am I going to cross peas? I don't know how to cross peas. So I said, "Oh, I remember. I saw a book a long time ago when I was 16, in which it was there's a paper. It was famous papers in genetics, and so one of the papers was Mendel's article translated into English from German uh, on." Peep on breeding peas, and in that it showed drawings about how you looked at the flower and opened up the flower, and and could and then how you did it. Right. So, I said, oh, good. So I read Mendel, and then I went and did it. Do you have species? They belong in a family. <clears throat> the family in plants is like the sunflower family, Helianthus, is many species, 50 species. So the species are one thing, and the next thing is the family. And then you get to the order, and that's the daisies. Sunflowers are daisies. So you've got one, in, it, it, one inside the other, inside the other, as, a, as you build the whole thing till you get to the place where you've got all flowering plants. But some of the flowering plants uh, have uh, how you would, the petaloid structure. Uh, monocots are generally threes, and dicots are generally fives and fours in number of petals, and then you can double them, or triple them, or quadruple them. So the, it, there's a lot of characteristics that lead to unity at a bigger level. Than, but the unity at a smaller level is that you're really uh, mints. There's, there's what, 8,000 species of mints. But, but salvia, the genus salvia has 800, no, there's 800 species of salvia. In all these sages and their relatives, 800 species, that's its own thing. And there's other places where Coleus and, and uh, Basil, and they all cluster together with a bunch of other genera. When you look where they come from, you find that the reason they're genera is because some came from southern South America, some came from Southeast Asia, some came from Australia. Right, The, the original locations where they arose, uh, an example of that kind of thing is uh, the South America and Africa once were together like this. Most of the solanums come from South America. But at one point, an ancestor went from, and then the continents separated, and that relative in West Africa m- m- migrated to India, where it got loose, gave rise to whole bunches of solanum melongena of eggplants, right? But the original plant... And so the idea was, oh, it must have come from there, but it didn't really come from there. It all came from South America and one group. Anyway, so you begin to see how the things migrate. This is geological time where things have taken 100 million years or more, 200 million to separate, how long it took to continents to be separated. There's another thing I saw, which is, I haven't seen much reinforcement of this, but I think it's very interesting. When we know that the Guanaland and when the continents were all one on the planet, that was one time in the evolution of diversity, when everything was in the same continent. When the continents separated then and the weather varied over the structure, then you had another set of consequences. So it went to one unified continent. And then it separated again to another half a dozen continents. And then before that, it went back and it was one continent. That this thing we call the continents are at least three times from one to many and back to one.
0: Wow.
1: So, now I don't, that, I, I read an article about this and it was, you know, it's obvious we don't know. We do know certain things. We know that up in... British Columbia, there was a place where they could find these fossilized records of all the different body forms of the animals. And we'd never seen that many different kinds because none of them exist right now. So, what how, oh, David Raines Wallace, very great uh, eco evolutionary biologist, has written a bunch of stuff about how these, the, about the whales and off the coast here about all the hominid, all the uh, the warm blooded whales and porpoises and stuff that where they came the Cyrenians and where they all lived here and evolved here, the timing and what happened on the earth, so the answer to the thing about the biodiversity or how you'd look at a kinship map is you you would take a rep of the daisies and a rep, maybe you like tomatoes and potatoes, so you put a Solanaceae, there. But what about legumes and, and what about roses? And so that's another major thing. So the, what happens is you begin to look at the major groups of plants you know and see who are their next-level cousins. Because, you know, people do a blood test now and they, from saliva test, and they say, oh, you were 10% Scandinavian and 8% uh, Austro, Austro-Russian, right? And because of the DNA analysis of what it is, well, what about the analysis of... of who came from where and how it got put together that's the structure of the diversity and so at some level you know somebody could figure out important new changes by doing breeding that will you know get more healthy active disease resistant and you don't need poisons to grow them right or how much nitrogen fixation a plant will provide if you can have a legume that really likes to grow, like clovers, among all the other plants that could use nitrogen, right? So you can do a mixed cultivation and maybe you could get the right combinations that make more aggressively healthy. and. Then you get food, you get the amino acids in food. If you had lysine, leucine, threonine, all the amino acids, you could breed for every one of them, and you could then increase the amount and then you could of amino acids. So rather than slaughtering sentient animals, you could actually be growing plants that have the amino acids or fruits that have the stuff. I mean, there's a lot of potentially great discoveries. I mean, the the DNA helix was a great discovery because it puts the pieces together. Then protein synthesis was a great discovery because you could see how the code of the DNA got translated into the Code of amino acids, which made proteins, which ended up making what we see: architecture, stature, blooming time. Uh, all those characteristics of the ecology of the plants are all bred into the thing. How can we mix them up and make some new ones? Well, you know that's available to everybody.
0: So um, you know, this that's interesting. The whole thing about the continents, you know, splitting apart and coming back together, leads me to this this question: What do you think about? the idea that there are native and exotic species?
1: Well, I mean, the, in, in the way we look at it, yes. If you could take... Well, it also depends on the ecology, right? If the weather's changed over 10 million years and all of a sudden the place that was cold is now warm, then you can incorporate a whole bunch of new species in that climate. But native species, okay, so how old is old? If you look at some of the fossils of the redwood, uh, the coastal redwood, you find those fossils, I think, up in Alaska, right? So, but, so there was a time where the redwood forest went all the way up into Alaska, right? It's not there anymore. Now, some of it disappeared because uh, the weather changed in such a way that it didn't propagate, right? Another reason is because we cut it all down, right? And another reason is because we sprayed herbicides and inadvertently killed it, uh, it's mycorrhizal companions that it needed to grow or stuff like that. So,
0: uh, Do you feel like some areas should be reserved for plants that are in a sort of short time frame native to a particular area?
1: Well, I think it's interesting to grow native species which are disappearing. And anything you can look around and realize, oh, there used to be... A, I mean, I remember there was Lomatium's, <clears throat> there are some that are medicinal, like Nudicoli and other ones like dissectum. They make tinctures out of them. But there's also uh, Bradshaw's Lomatium. and and that was the rarest plant in the Willamette Valley. And, and yet it's a lomation. It used to be all over the place. But then when you have grazing animals that eat the whole thing down and trample all the stuff, and then you have big machines that come in and just mow the whole thing down and turn it in and plant wheat, you end up with the same. You end up with the So it took us five years to find some plants of that.
0: Hmm.
1: right so at that level yeah there's a lot of reasons to want to grow diversity just to even find out what did grow here a hundred years ago that's now pretty much almost gone right and and so and and then there's what other character uh, then what are the food plants the wapato the Sagittaria latifolia the, that's a got a good edible uh, submerged uh, edible tuber and uh, turion I guess they call them, and that used to be a major food plant for the Native Americans before the Caucasians arrived. Well, before that, you know, how did you get some of the squirrels and some of the animals came across the land bridge from, from Siberia? Uh, you know, the, the thing has been moving around and mixing up genes. So when we talk about, oh, what would you like to see grown in terms of, I mean, that's an endemic species, well, one of the food plants, but the other ones are just endemic species that are beautiful flowers that have their own life cycle that live because they got pollinators and and collaborators and stuff like that. We don't seem to care too much about that. If you're going to replant Douglas fir over every forest that you cut down for timber, you're missing a whole lot of reality, both in terms of birds that would live in there and pollinators that would live in the forest and what the diversity actually gives you in terms of uh, the, it, you know, it's like diversity is the staff of life. I mean, diversity is how come we have life. Just like if you don't you wonder about it, you look at your chromosomes, you look at your the, the DNA organization, you realize it's phenomenally complex phenomenally complex. So the same thing is true about how evolution goes on, how grexes interbreed and how the interbreeding process mixes up stuff. And then the, this has all been going on for billions of years, right? It's, it's like the common heritage
0: we have. How can people learn more about your work? Well, you
1: could listen to maybe the half the ten videos online. Okay. That's one way to, to, people ask questions and you answer them and discuss some hmm. of the issues you can always uh, email me, Hmm. alcapular at yahoo.com, and I'm inclined to wanting to answer uh, most everybody's questions if I can.
0: Is there anything else that you wanted to mention?
1: I I really think that uh, backyard organic gardening or gardening, organic crops or exploring diversity are worthwhile in our lives. Hmm. It's it's, it's the basic kind of uh, uh, knowing that uh, when we sit in the backyard and the hummingbird goes flying over to the uh, uh, to the, two, the flowers that have nectar and, and and the birds come in to eat some of the cat food, you know, and you know it's sort of you you begin to enjoy that life is a marvelous development and, and we're what we're looking at is how we can preserve the developments rather than eliminate
0: them. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming by, hanging out here in the living room for an hour. <laughs> Don't and, forget about your website. Oh, I
1: forgot that. Yeah, you yes, said go that's ahead a good and say also. Also, his thank you very much. There is peaceseedslive.com, dot com, which is a website that gives a good deal of further papers that I've written and stuff that we've talked about and developments about uh, about talking about GMOs, talking about. Uh, uh, the structure of soils and the way that the living system all puts it together and, and how we got into this stuff. Because there's one of the papers there, called 30 Years After, when Linda and Alvinette and myself got together and founded Peace Seeds and, and why we did it and that we recognized that the hippies are going to have to have good food, and we can't afford to buy stuff we don't need. So why don't we complete the cycle and save the squash seeds and save the corn seeds and start to plant the stuff that we can handle in our own backyards? That was the beginning. So that's part of it. There's a, both historical as
0: well as historical. Cons- Thank you so much for tuning in to Earth Repair Radio. I'm Andrew Millison, and you can find more episodes on earthrepairradio.com.